Welcome to episode 27 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. We're going very futuristic today because, first of all, we're going to tell you how the pandemic is changing our homes, and then we're going to tell you about how some extraordinary innovation from the Royal Shakespeare Company is changing theatre. But first... We're going to start with a dramatic new tale of lockdown and attempted breakouts from the Glaswegian-based author Ewan Morrison. Ewan has already won numerous prestigious awards, including the Saltire Prize for Fiction for his novel Nina X, about a young woman coping with being in a Maoist cult. He's also a very successful screenwriter. He's been nominated for three Scottish BAFTAs. But today we're talking about his new must-read blockbuster thriller inspired by the pandemic. It's called How to Survive Everything and has already been highly praised. Irvin Welsh, no less, has described Ewan as one of the most provocative and intelligent novelists working in Britain today. And Ewan's here with us on our podcast. Good morning, Ewan. Good morning, Ed. How are you? Very well. Well, good morning, Ewan. I'm not so well because I finished reading your book last night. <laughs> so thank you for my extremely vivid dreams. Some of them very, very anxious ones about being a dysfunctional parent. Oh, um, good. good. Yeah, good, good. no, no, no. Oh, it's, I mean, it really did sort of keep me quite awake. Anyway, now, How to Survive Everything really is a post-apocalyptic, or is it, tale. Mm-hmm. It's sort of Cormac McCarthy's The Road meets John Lanchester's The Wall with a bit of Mad Max thrown in. But but told from the point of view of a very bright 15-year-old girl. It's occasionally extremely funny, and the plot twists and turns at a sparkling pace. So without giving too much away, start by telling our listeners what it's about. Right, well, um, it's about a girl called uh, Haley, and she's a regular teenager who lives in the city. And her parents divorced because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which we've just been through. And they both went their different ways. So um, her mum, Justine, sort of... uh, doubled down on normalcy, if you like, and just tried to get on with the hard task of being a divorced mother. Her father, Ed, has um, become um, a, a, an apocalypse prepper, uh, which is basically a, a kind of well-planned survivalist. And he's uh, developed a group of people and got themselves a place in the middle of nowhere and created this kind of lockdown shack that's weaponized and surrounded by razor wire. And he, um, so he decides basically he has to abduct his children because he believes it's, it's 2025 and he believes that the next huge pandemic is coming and this will be the one that we feared COVID-19 might have been. This will be the the world-ending pandemic. So basically the story is told from Haley's perspective as a somewhat naive but also, you know, a bit jaded and a bit stylish teenager as she kind of recounts the story of her abduction and how she managed to um, survive the survivalists, if you like. So you, this is, you know, this takes into account COVID. So you must have started writing this, what, last March? Oh, no, I actually started writing it in 2013. Um, oh, my when... God, so you're, you're a soothsayer. How did you know? <laughs> I, had the wrong, I had the wrong disaster. That was what it was. I was working on a, a TV show with my wife, um, which became the, the, um, the blockbuster TV special American Blackout, which was about a cyber attack in the US. And so we had... Um, yeah, and the ensuing collapse of civilization. So we had tons and tons and tons of research uh, that National Geographic had got for us with government agencies in the United States. Things like the Department of Collapse Studies at Columbia. I had no idea such a thing even existed. So when we'd finished that program, we were left with all of this vast amount of terrifying research and we were a bit freaked out. So in 2013, we, we decided to get ourselves um, a pad in the middle of the countryside and start preparing as the just-in-case 
sort of thing. And I started writing um, a book which was about the same family and a similar collapse, but it was going to be about the collapse of oil. And then I had this horrible experience of realizing that my apocalypse was not going to happen in <laughs> any time oh because they discovered <laughs> they discovered so much oil and ways to get oil so peak oil's been kicked another 100 years into the future so the book languished for a while until the pandemic came along and then i thought aha so i, I started rewriting um in in about february actually of 2020 and um and it was then that i got the idea that the whole story would be told as a teenager's own survival guide but so you decided to write it from the perspective of a teenage girl because the book is really partly about parenting and trying to keep your children safe from danger i mean do you have a teenage daughter i mean it must it's the obvious question to ask how a middle-aged man gets himself into the mind <laughs> of a teenage girl <laughs> i do actually i have a i have a teenage son and a teenage sorry, a 22-year-old son and a teenage daughter. And it was mostly, I guess my son back in 2013 was more like the teenager. So I simply swapped the gender. I thought, right, I'm going to take all the strange language um, that Generation Z use. They have they have such a wonderful use of language that they could have heap up. Well, I'm glad you call it wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of dreadful in terms of the English language. No, I, I, it's a kind of debased. I mean, it's wonderful for a writer of fiction because yes. it's very colorful, but it's a kind of, I guess, a debased American lingo meets international, you know, hip lingo that you get from the internet. So, you know, OMG becomes an actual word. I took I took some of the of the good and the bad of my experience of parenting and the, the strange experience of, of um of the language and culture of Generation Z kids. Uh, and also, I think I probably put a whole bunch of paranoia in there about being a really dysfunctional parent. Now, you're clearly very preoccupied, you know, with how to tell what's true and factual mm. amongst all the fake news. And in this particular story, that's made worse by the fact that heroine's father is, you know, is full of paranoid delusions and everything. Do you think our ability for discerning what's true and factual has receded or improved during this pandemic? I mean, there's a lot of talk about fake news. And really what people are talking about is it's the legacy of the Internet, really. I remember when the Internet first kicked off. There was a great excitement that we would get the truth from citizen reporters. You remember this? This was about 10, 15 years ago. When you give everyone the chance to record their own news. Well, 50% of the population of America, for example, believe in conspiracy theories. So 50% of the content that you're going to get out there is going to be, you know, from people who believe in, 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 in UFOs and lizard, you know, a lizard species who runs a secret cabal that's part of the New World Order, the Illuminati and the communists, you know. So you get a proliferation of this kind of noise. And I think what's happening is the legacy media, as it's called, it's, I think it's a pejorative expression. The mainstream media, the BBC, their CNN, etc. They're really pulling back on all of this now. And they're saying, no, nope, we're going to go back to the old days when we told you the truth. The real problem with that, though, is that I don't think we really believe what we're getting on the mainstream news as much as we used to. And there's a sense that the World Health Organization is kind of in cahoots with the broadcasters around the world to sort of brush the origin story under the carpet. I mean, in America, they're basically trying to shut down all of the alternative voices that are out there. They're giving their strange versions of reality. Um, but it's, it's a huge political issue now. And I, I really don't think that, that there's an easy solution. It's certainly not by tightening freedom of speech and claiming that everything that the mainstream media disagrees with is fake. Well, there's the whole thing about point of view um, within the book, whose 
who's got the right point of view mum who thinks that that actually you know waitrose is still open 100 miles away <laughs> that there's still electricity that that gangs are not roving around the streets raping and pillaging and setting fire to everything and, and spreading contamination that there's not a military takeover to try and control it she's quite convinced that if she could just escape from the survivalist compound with her son and daughter even though she's never gone into the scottish wilderness before in her life um you know everything will be be okay on the other side. And then, you know, there's her father and the survivalists who believe that they don't even need to listen to any of the news anymore because it's a done deal. The apocalypse has begun and all they're going to get is fake news from, from all these sources. So the the question of, of of what the truth is is right in the middle of the problem of the protagonist, Haley. She's torn again between her mum and her dad. Now she's got to choose between two huge, hugely differing worldviews, you know. Can we make it back to civilization and is it okay? Or have we got to hide away for three years um, until seven-eighths of the population of the world has died off? You said something earlier, Ewan. You hinted. You said a house in the middle of nowhere. Now, have you, and I couldn't, and you said to prepare, and I couldn't work out, was that to prepare for the apocalypse or prepare for the novel? Have you become a prepper? Oh, yeah, that's a good uh, analytic question. <laughs> um, well, well, let's see, round about... Oh, he's starting to stutter. He's getting nervous. <laughs> well spotted, well spotted. Well, I mean, I'm a, I guess you could call me a failed prepper. Uh, we had about a year of it, and we discovered that we were just probably too bourgeois to pull this thing off properly. So, um, so we got a little place on the banks of Loch Long. We 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 planted a, a vegetable garden. The idea was that we were going to go full self-sustaining. We had off grid, off grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what? But two main problems really were. Um, that we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And it was so labor and <laughs> so labor intensive. We put fertilizer on our carrots and our parsnips and they all, I don't know what it's called when they sprout in different directions and they just look dreadful. So you had carrots, mutated carrots with eight fingers and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and, but just to show how pathetically bourgeois we were, the only thing that really worked was rocket. I think prepping is a male thing. I have this, I shouldn't really say this on a podcast. I have this sort of, I have this fantasy. <laughs> I have this fantasy of just living mm-hmm. in a cube, in a cube mm-hmm. where I have seven onesies Monday to Sunday. <laughs> and a laptop, you know, on which I can watch films or listen to music. And that's it. Uh, like- unfortunately, for, for my, in terms of my prepping, this r- relies slightly on Deliveroo because I wouldn't have a kitchen. You'd be good after But I think there is, a, there is a male tendency to mm-hmm. want, particularly as one gets older, complete isolation mm-hmm. and to completely remove mm-hmm. all the sort of clutter from one's life. Do you think that's I, a thing? I think that's absolutely a thing. Um, and I think there is this sort of yearning to reduce, you know, to go against the chit-chat of civilization and the... I think after a certain age, you get a bit bored of the repetition of of fashions and conversations and things people get excited about. And I guess you have kids as well. If you have kids, you look at all the things they get excited by and you go, oh, here we go again. And probably by the time you're a grandparent, you're probably done with it and would rather live in a box somewhere. Um, It's quite interesting because I'm thinking from a woman's point of view, as you're talking, you don't hear that much, do you, about great women hermits who've gone and set up shop yeah, on top of some or, pillar yeah, in the middle of, of nowhere. Mm. Indian gurus tend not no. to be women. 
No, I know. Those people who sit on top of poles. Exactly. There are there are interesting women explorers, though. Um, you know, in, in, largely intrepid Victorian women who do things like fly across the world and vanish. And and, um, and Freya Stark and... And, mm. and, yeah. and yeah, yeah. And there's, there's these women going around the world in boats and breaking records and stuff. So there there is some kind of... Um, maybe... Strangely enough, the women are involved in some kind of quest to prove it to themselves, and the men are just running away from the world. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I think mm. that's a good note to end on. I'm going to go and live in your cottage in the middle of nowhere. Oh, thank you so much, Ewan. Thanks for having me. That was great fun. Bye for now. After all that apocalyptic stuff, we're now turning to the more comforting topic of home. It goes without saying that we've all become far more concerned with our homes during the last year. So we're delighted to tell you that the historic museum of the home in Hoxton is reopening in the spring after a major redevelopment. The museum, housed in the 300-year-old Geoffrey Almshouses on Kingsland Road, first opened in 1914 as the Geoffrey Museum, exhibiting woodwork and furniture. It was during the 1930s that it started to focus on the history of domesticity, and now it's going to be opening with 80% more exhibition space as a place to discover and rethink what home means. And this morning, we're joined by the museum's director, Sonia Solikari. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Good morning, Sonia. We're delighted you're here, as we love uncovering these hidden gems of museums. And I know our listeners love hearing about them too. So what we really want to start with is obviously what's new about the museum when it reopens, given that you've had this huge redevelopment. Um, yes, well, we, we are increasing public space by 80%. So for those listeners who visited the museum before, there'll be many more spaces to explore that they never would have seen. And for those visiting the museum for the first time, we are telling a much broader and wider story of home than we ever did before. So by that, I mean, we're really focusing in on personal stories and we're asking the visitor, what does home mean to you? And I, rem- I remember there was a big row about a pub when the redevelopment was first put forward. Yeah, that's right. But that's that's now been saved um, and that's been converted into a cafe and that will be the museum's cafe. So that is your pub now? Um, yes, <laughs> yes. Sonia, you, now, you now own a pub as well as... <laughs> fantastic. It is one of my dreams. <laughs> are you, yeah, are you, you, you're potentially a trivial pursuit question. Which museum director is also a pub landlord? <laughs> it won't be operating as a pub it will very much be a cafe although alcohol will be will be served it will be on the menu so uh just to be slightly more serious so the museum's reopened it's, it's had this major refit are you is are you going to take account of the impact of the pandemic on the home are you going to have a home office section so we were obviously as a museum of home ab- absolutely um you know, interested in how people's home lives were changing through the pandemic. So we launched a collecting project called Stay Home, uh, which was an open call uh, where people could answer a set of questions about how they feel about their home space, what has changed, what's what's challenging for them. And so that's formed part of a new collection, which will be on display when we reopen. And obviously, we are looking at how that situation is changing as well, because as, as we emerge from lockdown, um, you know, what, what of those elements that have changed during it are here to stay. So there's been lots of conversations about working from home and how that may be set to continue. So we will be actively telling and exploring those stories as they evolve. I think all you need is a podcast microphone and a set of dumbbells. That kind of sums up the <laughs> pandemic. 
this is your yeah. theme for the morning, Ed. Ed's very into honing down his life to the bare necessities at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure dumbbells would be my uh, desert island object, but yeah. <laughs> so obviously, you know, you're in London, you're in Hoxton. London is a, a hugely multicultural city. Does the, the, the Museum of the Home presumably reflects that different cultures have different concepts of what home is like. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. So the new home galleries are telling many more diverse stories of home. And we're looking at questions of migration as well and how people's um, home experiences and, and home lives from various cultures af- affect um, how they're living both today, but also historically. So that's very much at the heart of the new stories. And when we reopen, we will be launching a rethink of our rooms through time as well, uh, because the museum previously before we shut were really well known for our wonderful period room sets. They weren't in scope for this current project project. Um, the new project was all about new spaces. But actually, when we were open, we we're thinking, well, what is what is a room set for the 21st century? And what should those stories be? So it's an active and ongoing project looking to um, expand the stories that we tell at the museum. And obviously, as Ed said, you know, we are in a really multicultural melting pot, especially in London. But is, have you found there's a common thread through the British home? Is there a sense of, of, of a particularly British looking home do you think yeah so um you know the, the the story of the british home is a story of migration and that's been going on for centuries um and that is very much a story that we tell at the museum but then also the objects that we fill our homes with so even in, you know from whatever background you come from, if you've been born in, in the UK, your home is likely to be filled by objects from all around the world. And so that's that's something that we look at as well. And, you know, those objects will have positive and, and, and negative stories as, as well. Some of those will be subject of, you know, exploitation globally. Um, and some of those will be mementos and things that people have brought into their own home. So our, our, our homes are these complex spaces and they're a mix of so many different narratives, stories, emotions, um, psychological responses. But is there a kind of essence of the British home? If I walked into a house, would I know that I'm in Britain as opposed to France or Germany? We define, we're starting to move towards defining home more of a a feeling rather than the physical space. I mean, there are obviously things that typify British home design. And we certainly do look look at that, you know, things like, for instance, the um, suburban home of the 1930s and that huge expansion in housing you know that's that's that that a lot of people would say that's a very british style similarly um you know that the victorian home so obviously in physical terms there are things that you can definitely define as british but in terms of how we feel about our home um we're looking at that much more universally we, we you know we say that home is universally relevant but deeply personal which is why i go back to that idea of what does home mean to you what is the same and what is different about your home compared with other homes and and that's the question that we're looking to open up. I think one of the interesting things about the pandemic has been, you know, before the pandemic, everybody wanted that great big communal space, but we've all had to live suddenly, we've all had to squidge in and live together. And I mean, certainly if I didn't have my little cubbyhole, you know, Ed and I wouldn't have been able to do this podcast. So I'm just wondering if, if you've seen an immediate impact of the pandemic on how on planning a home? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's certainly a question which architects I know are asking themselves. I mean, the the conflict and tensions, as, as you identify, between open plan living <laughs> and, and, and the need for privacy, which has been highlighted during the pandemic. Um, certainly through our stay home collecting, one of the themes that emerged quite strongly was sound, actually. Um, that could be that people were at home more, so they were more aware of the sounds in the street, the, you know, the sounds of the, you know domestic comings and goings. 
but also the people that they live with. Um, and when you're trying to do a Zoom call, you know, what, what noises are, are around you? <laughs> so that issue of sound soundproofing is certainly something that um, we at the museum and I think architects more widely are, are starting to, to, to look at. I'm also really interested in your passion for using the museum as a way of confronting urgent social issues. And, and you've said that in particular, you're going to be looking at tackling female homelessness in conjunction with the London Homeless Collective. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that's a project called Behind the Door. And as you say, it's, it's looking at um, homelessness affecting uh, women and families and particularly hidden homelessness. So it, we are not necessarily focusing on, on rough sleeping uniquely. So the London Homeless Collective, you know, they are a collection of pan-London charities and they're the people who really have knowledge of this on the ground. So as a museum, we are um, very much using our voice and our platform to raise awareness and raise money for this cause and hopefully um, make a difference. So one of the first events that we're rolling out as part of the Behind the Door project is an auction on the 19th of March to help raise money for female and family homelessness. So there'll be 40 unique lots from um, fashion designers, artists, there's experiences and there's beautiful objects. So if you uh, just take a look at our website, you can log on for that auction and that will be taking place from the 19th of March. Brilliant. Well, I'm a big fan of the Museum of the Home. In fact, I think my mother was once a trustee there. So yes, that's right. Yes, We've got was. a bit of a uh, family connection there. So yeah. <laughs> Charlotte and I will be hightailing it down to your pub. <laughs> First available opportunity. It will be a joy to serve you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Now, what do you think when you think of a Midsummer Night's Dream? Puck in tights, a man in an ass's head, that sounds very strange. And three fairies <laughs> dancing around flowery glades. Well, think again, because the Royal Shakespeare Company has used the play as a starting point to drag theatre kicking and screaming into the future. The company has partnered with the Audience of the Future Live Performance Demonstrator, which is funded by a government quango called Innovate UK, to create 50 minutes of theatre like you've never seen it before, in which live performance and gaming technology merge. Collaborating with the Manchester International Festival, Marshmallow Laser Feast and the Philharmonia Orchestra, the RSC has staged a live performance of Dream. But the difference is they're using motion capture. So audiences can directly influence what happens from wherever they are. I might well have got all that wrong in my attempt to simplify it. But luckily, we're joined by Sarah Ellis, who's the Director of Digital Development at the RSC, who can tell us all about it. Good morning, Sarah. Morning, Ed. Nice to meet you. Good morning, Sarah. And um, I confess to feeling a bit intimidated by your CV, not just because of all the amazing awards you've won for innovation and experimentation, but more because your achievements have made me realise I really do need to get into the present, let alone into the future. Now, this version of Dream sounds a bit like entering a video game, but I think Ed's very wise in leaving you to explain it to our listeners. So tell us all about it. So Dream is a culmination of the Audience of the Future fund which was to explore the future of live performance using immersive technologies and last year we were due to do a, a performance in Stratford-upon-Avon in person and obviously uh, the pandemic hit and we had to stop production straight away and that was a really hard thing to do and we had to grieve that piece and we sort of recognised we weren't going to be able to make that and that we needed to look at Dream and the play, the, what we were doing for audiences in their homes so we immediately 
took commissioned some audience research and in that audience research there was an overwhelming sense of feedback around audiences were craving togetherness and liveness what the audience research also uncovered was there's a huge digital inequity in people's homes and it was really important that in this move to putting dream out there and digitally distributing it that that we made it accessible so dream isn't the play it isn't the three-hour shakespeare play what it is is inspired by the play and we're looking at the fairy world we're looking at the spirit world and through a, a web a website which is how you'll be able to access it on your desktop or your mobile phone or your tablet what will happen is you will click the url um, and it will take you into the world of the play. And Puck will take you on a journey through the forest. And in that forest, you'll meet sprites and, and characters from the play. And within that, you can either sit back, relax, and watch the experience from your home and enjoy it. But for a few audiences, if you want to interact and get closer and connect with us, um, you'll be able to be a firefly. Um, we've worked with... Um, brilliant coders and programmers to and, and character artists to make the characters of the the spirit world come alive well it just sounds absolutely amazing i mean i know that um greg doran whom our listeners probably know as the rsc artistic director has said he's really excited about this and he's he said that um you know the story is king and and you know stories are never going to change whether you engage with them as a gamer or as an audience member but surely the point of this if unless I'm getting something really wrong is that by doing it this way we can change the story I mean the technology or if you wanted to do that you absolutely could give much greater agency to your audience to explore but on this particular presentation because the research sort of said to us we want to look at togetherness and liveness that's really what we've taken in into this if you know what I mean and that's quite important but I think what's wonderful is that this this isn't something new for us we've been working with motion capture technology for a long time so with our 2016 production of the Tempest which Greg directed um, as part of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death we we used that technology of of gaming engines and motion capture technology to to bring a character of Ariel alive and and really what we've done is just taken the spirit of that forward but in this instance what's significant is that we're trying to connect people with people wherever they are and try and instead of instead of just give you a web link to experience something make it a sense of event make it have meaning make people feel part of something so in this instance we will hold you a bit more possibly than you could do but I think that's quite important. But you don't need any special equipment as an audience member you can do it on your computer. That's right you don't need to purchase another technology to experience it. You started doing all this before the pandemic. This is not kind of pandemic inspired, let's get digital in a hurry. It's more to do with technology is now becoming mainstream in everybody's life. How does theatre kind of go to where people are? That's right. We've been working on this project for the past few years and we're disrupted by the pandemic and it, and it, that's, that's what's caused us to to create the work that we'll share in a, in 10 days time in March. Um, and, and it has been a huge recalibration of that, but the RSC, I mean, theatre's always innovated with technology. We've always worked with the tools that we have, and we're just extending our theatre making toolkit by doing this, but we're also reaching audiences that 
may not have a connection with just the RSC, but have a connection to our colleagues and peers at Marshmallow Laser Feast or Manchester International Festival or Philharmonia. And I think one of the opportunities that we've seen is actually by collaborating and working together, we can find we can find more people collectively working as a sector rather than working on our own. It is a conversation with an audience where we will be really curious to see what they think and what they take away and hear from our audience. So we get that, we, we build that for the future. Does each person have a different experience or does all do you have to have quite a limited audience that then shares in how everyone uh, collectively is changing what they're seeing on the screen. So everyone will have the same experience, but some of the people who choose to be a firefly will be able to have a more interactive experience. We will be doing this together. We'll be held together through, through the duration of the experience. But what will be important is that the audiences will know or understand that the actors can see the audience who are fireflies. And if we think about our theatres and we think about interactivity or immersion, theatre is a completely immersive experience. We may sit in those chairs, but the performers feel what the audience feel every night, which means it changes the performance. There will be a video LED screen in the studio where the actors are performing in their motion capture suits, and they will see the play, they will see the fireflies, and there will be a connection between not only the audience enjoying the performance, but the performers connecting with the audience. So we could probably have about up to 1,500 to 2,000 fireflies. And then we can have... Exactly. So it's sort of, we've tried to make it it accessible. It may be that not everyone is a firefly and they're really comfortable sitting back and watching it. Or you might come in and watch it and then see it and come back and, and interact. It's really important to say that we're trying to look at all the new models to understand how audiences want to connect with this. So it's a really important piece of learning for us as practitioners. But what we're trying to do is make that reach as big as we can with the constraints of the technology we have today. Well, I'm speechless, so is that. (laughs) Fantastic. Sounds absolutely amazing. I'm very excited by this. This is my (laughs) obsession with uh, the arts uh, embracing digital, not just as a sort of kind of add-on, oh, let's have a website, but really uh, doing a deep dive. So I'm very excited. I think it'll win you great new audiences yeah, and I start agree. an amazing journey thank you thanks we hope we hope audiences will enjoy it well thank you so much for coming on telling us about it and um i would say to all our listeners better get booking because there's a limited run isn't there it's it's on for a week i think yeah i think we've got 10 10 performances we're also programming it so our our audiences around the world can in, engage and enjoy it at times that are convenient to them including a 2am gmt performance for our west coast uh, friends so um there'll be lots of different opportunities to connect globally as well as as nationally fantastic i'm looking forward to it can't wait i'm afraid it's back to the present because that's all we've got time for this week all details of what we've talked about will be on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk and also if you go to the website you'll be able to tune into house guest our sister podcast which is all about interior design hosted by the wonderful Carol Annette. This week she talks to the potter, designer and author Jonathan Adler and it's a real humdinger of an episode. Also you can listen to our Great British Brands and Changemakers podcast in which the host Michael Heyman talks to the head winemaker at Hattingley Valley, that's a winemaker in the UK, Emma Rice. And just add forward slash 
newsletters to that address and you'll be able to read our newsletters including the latest March one from Great British Brands which focuses on food, drink and tea which I've been drinking a lot more of than ever before and we've also posted in that newsletter a really thought-provoking essay by the great chef and founder of Darjeeling Express Asma Khan who talks about how food and restaurants are so important as they can build bridges between cultures. I cannot wait to go to a restaurant talking of which I remember when we had Jesus Ardorno talking about Le Caprice. He's promised us a table if and when <laughs> it reopens. So, Richard Caring, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, <laughs> keep us in the loop. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go through our back catalogue and look out for the wonderful podcast we did with Jesus many months ago. And before we go, I just want to mention one regular listener who gives us really, really nice feedback week in, week out, and that's Viv Mason. So thank you very much, Viv. It's hugely appreciated, as are all your comments. So please do leave them on the Apple Podcast website. See you next week. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone.